following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener, Game of Thrones, Ted Lasso, The Flintstones, Young Frankenstein, WandaVision, Doctor Strange, and the Multiverse of Madness, Arrested Development, Rocky, Predator, Happy Gilmore, Halo, ODST, Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse, Super Mario Brothers, Jumanji, and Nacho Libre. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie or a TV show and then try to determine which one is cooler, robots, dinosaurs, or a hallway full of clones of yourself. Uh, I'm I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host, the Beskar-clad warrior, Evan Norris. Welcome back to the show, Evan. I'll take that. I like that description. Glad to be here and very excited about tying a bow on this season three of The Mandalorian. That's right. We are talking about the last uh, two episodes. I would count this as like a two-part finale. Um, it, it, it felt uh, that way. Yeah. Uh, the, like the, the, the second to last episode literally ends like, and then the, se- the next one, the, the, the yeah, I'm going to cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you know, you know what a two-part finale means. Um, so... This is, uh, yeah, this is, I think this is a great season. Um, we've, so we've covered all the episodes so far. Uh, before we get into it, uh, Evan, where would you rank this season compared to the previous seasons of Mandalorian? I still think this is the weakest season for me. Ooh, okay. And that's okay. really what compelled me to reach out to you and suggest we chat about this because we seem to be, we seem to differ a bit on that, which I, which is great. I'm, I've been glad to talk about this. In fact, I think talking through this season with you and rewatching it has softened a bit of my bitterness for lack of a better word. I I've become a little sweeter and less bitter, which okay. is great. But I still think as a whole, this season felt a little more disorganized than others. And, and that's why I don't love it as much as one and two, two, I would probably rank them like two, one, three, although one and two are pretty close for me. Hmm. That being said, this episode we're about to talk about, I think for me was the highlight and really captured all the things I love about the show. So I'm eager to get into it. I, yeah, I think I have recency bias when it comes to this, uh, this show and a lot of things. Um, Cause I definitely, I definitely don't think this is the best uh, season. I think season one was the best and I, but I like this more than season two. Um, okay. Not like drastically so. It's, it's you know, it's by degrees. It's really not by a wide margin. Um, but yeah, I think I, it, it, it's largely because of the Pirates episode, to be perfectly honest. Uh, <laughs> one thing that I'm actually kind of glad to eat crow on is, and, and, and I'm really glad that we rewatched um, this whole season as well, yeah. is... Uh, when we were talking about the pirates episode, particularly, I was like, oh yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really relate to the other ones. It is kind of isolated. They never really tie it together with the rest of the, with the plot. Um, but there is actually kind of a line where, uh, we'll get into it, but they, they do, uh, seem to, uh, acknowledge that the pirates did have something to do with the larger, larger overarching 
storm. That's right. And I, I totally appreciate that. And I, I, again, I'm really, I think this, this conversation is so strong between the two of us because we're coming at it from different angles, but we share a love for the subject material. And I'll say this, that a lot of, when I first watched this, when it aired on Disney Plus, I was a little confused. You know, the pirates, Gideon, the Mandalorians, the New Republic. How does this all add up? How does this all connect? Everything makes more sense in retrospect. I feel like this is a season, unlike the others, that demands to be watched twice. Mm. There were scenes, and we'll get to it early on in episode seven, where it was a very much an aha moment. Like, oh, that's why Gideon is asking for that. That's why that connects with that. So a lot of the mystery and confusion that I experienced on first watch was cleared up on the second watch. Well said. Um, so these, uh, both of these episodes were written, uh, uh, written by John Favreau and others, uh, but directed by Rick Famuyiwa. Um, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, Rick Famuyiwa. I know we're probably not doing it justice. It is Famu, Famuyiwa, maybe? Famuyiwa. Um, who has, uh, uh, directed a lot of episodes of the show and, um, yeah, I think he did a great job with the finale. Um, we have, I just want to shout out like some stars. I always like to like list some of the, uh, actors in, in each episode. And, um, of course, you know, Pedro Pascal, Katie O'Brien, Giancarlo Esposito, uh, who actually, I don't think we've seen so far this season, Giancarlo, this is his first appearance in this season. That's right. Only, only hints of him, but not his face or voice. And, uh, also I just want to shout out Charles Baker, um, his, Another example of a character that doesn't actually have a name, surprisingly, but he's one of the scout Mandalorians, um, one of the survivors that stayed uh, behind on Mandalore. Um, Is he the captain of that survival group? He's not the captain. He's the other guy. Okay. Um, (laughs) He stands out to me because he was on Breaking Bad. Oh, okay. He played a character called Skinny P that um, is... uh, like a meth head and and so he's come a long way from you know the streets of of uh yeah that's, New a, that's, a, to, that's, that's a promotion right to the mines of mandalore <laughs> um and yeah i just i think he's he's great he only gets like a few lines here and there on uh, these two episodes but i like him and then uh simon casanides who is axe woves yes he really carries a lot of these final two episodes and reveals himself as a true badass. Yep. And um, yeah, he, uh, I'm glad to see those part, part of, I think what makes you fall in love with the show, not only the main characters, but seeing these supporting characters come and go. It's like, Oh, I love that guy. I love that gal. So uh, Axe definitely falls into that category. Yeah. Axe, Axe went on a journey for me from like arrogant D bag in, in I think season two is when we first see him. Yeah to i think this is one of my favorite mandalorians i love this guy yeah well we we will get to this but i as much as i love him i am going to call into question some of the physical feats he's able to achieve in these episodes along with actually all the mandalorians but we'll get to that fair enough fair enough um all right so let's start with chapter 23 the spies so um this this episode starts on Coruscant in our uh, our little Blade Runner analog, <laughs> and we got Elia Kane 
uh, running through the streets of Coruscant and looking mad suspicious. And she ducks <laughs> into an alleyway. Um, I don't know how, I don't know how, but a probe droid just slipped past everything else and just ducked into this alleyway that apparently nobody else needs to use to transit uh, anywhere <laughs> in the city. Literally a city of a trillion people. But, you know, she has a little private meeting with this probe droid in an alleyway. And this is where um, uh, Moff Gideon, his his hologram, is talking to her and, and vice versa. And she says the pirates ran into trouble on Navarro. Um, so to me, that confirms like the whole pirate thing that we were kind of speculating on last time. Like, oh, did the Empire like hire them to sow chaos and, you know, cause a distraction so they could do get away with something else? Yes, absolutely. They did. Um, they that's. And and I think this confirms that Moff Gideon was behind that whole thing. So he probably hired uh, Gorian Shard personally. Yeah, that was my take on it too. I'm unsure exactly why. Like, I don't know how much that would move the needle, but at least they attempted to address the connection. Yeah, it's um, it is it is uh, yeah. I'm ju- I'm like sitting here, you know, playing devil's advocate and filling in these gaps sure. for them and trying to um, you know, trying to to, to uh, make it work. But <laughs> to be fair, uh, yeah, they, they, they don't really connect that, that, those threads that well because the reason it works, the reason that the pirates distract from what they're actually doing, which is, which is you know, um, extracting Moff Gideon before he goes to trial, the only person who discovered that was Carson Tiva. And... It's not like he was on a regular patrol when he discovered it. The only reason he discovered it is because he was like called to go help at Navarro. And when he got there, he did his thing or, well, no, he didn't even do his thing. He didn't even go to Navarro. So that makes it even crazier (laughs) because yeah, he, he went to a murder planet, um, dinosaur (laughs) turtle planet. And on the way back, just so happened to find the derelict shuttle. Um, so it's not like it was a regular New Republic patrol that otherwise would have found this shuttle right. if they weren't distracted by pirates. So it's loose. It's very loose. Let me ask you something, because I need you to, because you have, you're a, a veteran, you're a former Navy man. Would, is Carson Tiva AWOL? Because he seems to have just left his base and gone on his own <laughs> thing without like connecting with his CO. Am I crazy here? It's, it's a little weird. You know, I, I don't think you're wrong, but okay. um, uh, Cap Commander uh, Tim Meadows last last <laughs> a couple episodes ago said like this isn't a rebellion, this is a bureaucracy. Basically, yeah. what did he actually say? This isn't a rebellion anymore. We have a structure, mm-hmm. um, which goes against my argument because I was gonna say <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say maybe he doesn't really have to you know answer to anybody because they're kind of not at war, quote unquote, anymore. Um, but no, that's not the case. Um, yeah, he is kind of just doing his own thing. He is just kind of, you know, following a hunch or whatever. And and But maybe that speaks to the lack of oversight. Like they there is a bureaucracy for some things, but other things they play a little fast and loose, which again might explain why the New Republic was fated for failure. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, it's I was just laughing at that when Carson Tate was like flying around from planet to planet. 
And I'm like, did anyone sign the paperwork for this excursion? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and also if our if our five is still a new republic asset, you know, is 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 he, like does he belong to the new republic? Are they even trying to recover him? Mm-hmm. Like, do they even know that Pelimoto had him helping out in her shop and then he was spying on the Mandalorians or maybe there are some fan theories. Maybe the listeners can weigh in. <laughs> um so the so Elia uh, Kane has her private conversation out in public with this probe <laughs> droid, um, which, if I'm not mistaken, it's an imperial probe droid. It's like recognizably an imperial probe droid. It's not like this is just a all-purpose droid that Coruscant would just have floating around, right? Like it could blend in. I don't think we've ever seen evidence that probe droids were used before the advent of the Empire or used after it. So I think that that kind of onyx black intimidating probe droid outline is very much an imperial sort of thing. So yes, I, I, I suspect it would be suspicious. So how does it just sneak through Coruscant and how does well, nobody... Those are the slums, right? It seems like it's in a slum area of Coruscant. So maybe it's just kind of unpatrolled, unoccupied. It, it, could, it could slip through the cracks. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Now, now I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we see, uh, uh, so then after that conversation, that's unfortunately the last time we see Elia Kane this season. Um, and hopefully she comes back next season. Cause I think she's a good actor and, uh, uh, Katie O'Brien. And I think that character is like really interesting as a, uh, second in command kind of, you know, sniveling, um, lackey, uh, to the main bad guy. Mm. Um, it just it depends on who the main bad guy is, but we'll get to that uh, after the, after, after we talk about the finale. Um, so, so then Gideon uh, is in his base and he is, he walks across his like badass force field bridge and like each of the doors, like the force field doors open for him one at a time. And he goes and there's a, a circle of hologram people in, like gathering at a, um, Imperial Zoom meeting and <laughs> <laughs> they're talking about like uh, you know shadow government stuff, shadow yep. collective stuff. Um, one of them is like though there are citizens loyal to the Empire and every planet that are sick of the New Republic, all their rules and regulations. Um, didn't, didn't the Empire have a lot of rules and regulations and, and you know rigid uniform standards and like I'm sure that they they had like posted rules for like, if you are a citizen of the empire, you must do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, that is a good point. Maybe on some planets, there was a, a, an approach of, if you show absolute loyalty to the empire, you'll be allowed to kind of do your own thing. So maybe that there's an appetite for that, but yeah, they were pretty, they were pretty hardcore. So I don't know if, if that, if that adds up, I did enjoy this scene though, this scene, like others earlier in the season, show how the Empire endured and how it built up power in the shadows in those years after the Battle of Endor. So that mm. that went a long way for me. Yeah, we've got um, uh, uh, I counted like eight, like eight or nine of them um, to all talking to each other. These are like apparently high ranking officers that you know the after the Empire disbanded they they. Uh, kept their uniforms and 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, apparently kept their ranks and um, just decided to keep having these like clandestine meetings. And it is kind of what we were talking about earlier in the season where like the interesting framework that the Mandalorian shows us is that the First Order is basically the rebellion and they're the scrappy, you know, like splinter cells that have to work in secrecy against the large government, which is the New Republic. Yeah, that 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 symmetry of it is really interesting how the history of Star Wars is kind of an authority undermined by a rebellion, replaced by kind of a, a, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed new authority, which becomes corrupt or becomes complacent and is replaced by rebellion, which becomes the, the new evil. It's, it's actually super interesting. I still object to the whole planet-sized super laser that destroyed all those planets <laughs> at the beginning of The Force Awakens, but I digress. I, I will uh, seeing this seeing this shadow council and seeing how each imperial warlord, I guess we could call them a warlord at this point, had that like, yeah, that is the term they use. Yeah. yeah. Had like control over a pocket of the galaxy and and kind of shared resources. So it logistically, it absolutely makes sense how the Empire could endure. I mean, think about it. When the Death Star was destroyed outside of Endor a huge part of the fleet was elsewhere patrolling the galaxy. And, and so it's not like they all just deactivated upon the emperor dying. So you're telling me a, an eight year old kid can't just fly into the control ship and shut down the entire army. <laughs> that is what I'm saying. Yes. <laughs> that would be such a, that would be such a dumb concept if that ever happened in the star Wars movie. <laughs> no one in their right mind would do that. So it's pointless to even talk about <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. <laughs> so yeah, it's um I, I want to know who's promoting them though. Like who's like the ultimate, like how do they still have a rank structure when there's so few of them? And when they're like, oh, you out like you out like how do they pull rank on each other exactly? It has to be all just be this gr- agreed upon thing, right? It's not like any of them actually is a commander or a lieutenant. Like, what are you a commander mm-hmm. of? There's there's five of you. You you did see in that that's a good point. You did see in that scene that there were two people. One of them, a Hux, clearly a kind of commandant a, Hux. Yeah, a parent Brend- of Brendel. a parent of the Hux we meet in the sequel trilogy, and then another Imperial officer who's wearing the old gray Imperial regalia. Mm-hmm. And they clearly are, but some of them are not wearing the uniform. They're wearing you know like their own kind of self inspired garb. So I think there is a contingent that still has some of the facilities and the resources and wears the armor, the the uh, the outfits accordingly. And then there are others who maybe are scraping by a bit. In fact, the, when that's revealed, I suppose, when Gideon says, share some of those resources, you know, you've got these TIE fighters, these interceptors, give me some, because uh, if, if I fail, that's another that's another hole in the armor for all of us. True. I wonder if that's what it is where like your your rank is based on how many military assets you have, like or if it's, you know, they they all they all just for some reason honor um, whatever your rank was in the empire. You keep that rank and they and they all like agree upon that. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because because that's I mean, that's that's 
that's always going to be the obvious uh, problem with any sort of organization, like any power hungry organization like this is like people, you know, stepping over each other and, and uh, doing ruthless things and cutting each other's throats to, to attain a higher rank. Um, you know, like in the case of Empire Strikes Back, it was Vader killing all of his underlings and then immediately field promoting. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, we so we see Commandant Brendel Hux, and I did a little bit of research on this character because I I thought, oh cool, we're seeing um, we're seeing General Hux, like you know, in his early days, like I and I actually that's why I like looked into this whole rank structure thing because I was like, wait, so is this younger General Hux is Commandant below General? I don't really understand how it works in the Imperial Space Navy, <laughs> but um, but no, it's it actually is. Hux's father. And the little bit that I know, this is a big spoiler if you're ever going to read the books of like that tie the the this time period to the sequel trilogy, um, is that he was killed by Captain Phasma at one point oh. um, on orders of General Hux. So apparently uh, baby boy Hux didn't get along with his father, didn't like his father, and had Captain Phasma kill him. Wow, there's a whole Greek mythological aspect to that of the son killing the father. Wow, that's pretty cool. Is there? Um, I'll have to check that out. Phasma, I feel, and I don't, I don't, absolutely, I don't want to go on a tangent here, but Phasma, I feel, was a character that was set up for success and then nothing happened. But that's a that's a story for another day. Yeah, totally wasted potential. Yeah, yeah. I, if I get into that, I'll talk about that for yeah. a full hour. So. <laughs> um, the only other the only other character's name that I got out of this collective was the Shadow Collective was Captain Gilad Peleon. Uh, because the look of this guy, this is the guy with the mustache and the, you know, the the garrison cap. Um, and I was like, this guy looks like he was in the original trilogy. And I yes, just like I thought the same thing. Don't know his name. So let me look him up and see if that's the case. Cause that'd be cool if there was like an actual guy that was, you know, at the Battle of Endor, um, and he's coming back for this series but that's that it's not the case he is captain pelion is actually from also from the books um but he's from a different series of now discontinued canon books um the thrawn the thrawn books i think it's like the referred to as the thrawn trilogy and this guy in the books um is apparently not a very big character but he's thrawn's right hand man so that makes sense since he's constantly hyping up thrawn in that shadow council meeting yeah. Um, what do you what do you know about Thrawn? Have you read any of the Thrawn books or? Actually, that is a big gap in my resume, my Star Wars resume. I read a lot of the expanded universe material that took place in between the original trilogy or just after it. But I missed the Thrawn trilogy. So I, I know that character. I could recognize him immediately based on his white uniform, the blue skin. And I know how significant he is in the post Endor landscape of imperial politics, but that's about it. I never read the books. Hmm. I haven't read them either. My only real familiarity with him is from the he was on Rebels briefly. Um, one one cool thing about him uh, uh, is, uh, and this is this is from Rebels, so it's definitely canon in this timeline as well. Is that um, any like culture that he conquers? He always uh, takes um, uh, a sample of their art to like hang up in his private quarters. Um, and he has this whole thing about how like art 
knowing the art of a culture tells you more than like, no, like if you took their technology or if you took like their, you know, if you took anything else from them, you wouldn't get as much, you wouldn't get as much of a complete picture of who they are as a people and therefore how to conquer them the most effectively um, as if you study their art. Oh, I, wow. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. He's Thrawn is like scary because he's so smart. He's like that kind of villain. Um, so Gideon is, uh, yeah, Gideon is requesting, um, three Praetorian guards and, uh, also some Thai interceptors and some Thai bombers. Um, and they're like, you know, that's ridiculous. Why do you need so many things? And he's like, well, the Mandalorians are going to try to come back and take Mandalore. And, you know, I just, I just found out that they, um, cause this is what his, his conversation with Eliah Kane, I kind of yada yada over it, but, uh, she tells him that. The, these two factions of Mandalores, Mandalorians are working together now. And he's like, that's impossible. They hate each other. And she's like, well, it's, it's possible because it's happening. So he is, uh, he knows they're coming for him specifically because uh, he deserves it. And so, yeah. And they, uh, they surprisingly relent and they're like, okay, uh, Commandant Hunks is a uh, hunk. Commandant Hunks. <laughs> there should is, be a Commandant hunk. hunk. uh that's that's actually captain phasma um in another life but uh the yeah but they but they give him they give him they're like you shall have your praetorian guards and your bombers and your interceptors (laughs) now um um, let me ask you this when you watched this the first time were you a little confused because that they they deferred to gideon and, and gave him what he wanted because I was watching it the first time and I'm like, so the Mandalorian, like a 30 Mandalorians, 50 Mandalorians are going to take back Mandalore, big whoop. You know, we've got bigger fish to fry. And so I was surprised Gideon cared so much, one. And two, surprised they gave him the resources. Then, as we get later into this episode, it's revealed that he is on Mandalore. Mm -hmm. And that's not explained yet. So that's a cool revelation. I really enjoyed that. Uh, when they're, you know, we, we'll get to it, when they're weaving through the tunnels and they and they op- it opens up into that base and then mm-hmm. getting in. Pre- and I'm like, oh, that's why, that's why the Shadow Council is so interested in protecting Mandalore because it's essentially, if, if Mandalore fails, they lose Gideon and a huge sector of the galaxy. Yeah, I was going to say, there's no way, there's no way that the Shadow Collective doesn't know that he's right. there. But um, the audience doesn't know. Yeah, because... Uh, um. Yeah, there, there, it seems to be like when he is, when he's having, when he's like giving his speech uh, about like why he needs that and why Mandalore is important. Um, there, there, there's also a mention of uh, Project Necromancer. Commandant Hux is is running Project Necromancer, which, like, I I may be assuming, but I like this is me putting all the pieces together. This is. Com- like the, com- whatever project necromancer is it's like taking dr pershing's work that gideon was forcing him to do um and you know collecting that data in order to clone emperor palpatine and that leads to the development of snoke um and then you know episode seven and eight um so that i think that's what like commandant hux is referring to project necromancer and then they accuse Gideon of being interested in cloning and continuing cloning research. And he like laughs it off. He's like, no, that'd be absurd. You're the one that's doing that. Um, 
But then like, there's a moment where some of the shadow collective guys kind of look at each other and the two that seem to be the odd men out are, are Peleon and Hux. They seem to be like, they're on the same page with each other, but they, they kind of read the room and realize everyone else is on Gideon's side and we can't go against the grain because then we'll be outnumbered. I don't know if I'm just interpreting it that way, but did you, did you notice that like that, you know, Gideon's guys all looking at each other with sort of a knowing smirk and then voting to, um, to give him his resources. I, di- I didn't pick up on that in particular in general, though, I did pick up on a sort of tension between the old guard, I guess that those still in the Imperial uniforms and the, quote unquote warlords who were kind of pursuing their own ambitions. Mm. So I, I picked up on that animosity in general, but I didn't notice that particular body language in, in that moment. Mm. Yeah, it's it's not like it really goes anywhere because because <laughs> we don't see any of these other officers the rest of the the episode uh or next episode. So um I guess we'll just have to wait till next season to find out which one of them is the is going to come back and be a big bad. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So, uh, so then we cut over to Navarro and a uh, Imperial light cruiser is advancing over the city. And, um, the, our friend, the copper Navarro droid, uh, protocol droid thinks that, Oh no, it's the empire. They're here. Oh no. <laughs> and, uh, uh, grief Karga tells him, uh, no, 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 that look, Look at the markings on it. That's a, you know, Mythosaur, that's a Mandalorian ship. How and awesome is that? Very cool shot of just like the underbelly of this thing with the red skull painted on it, um, just slowly advancing over the city. You'd think, though, they might like give him the courtesy of letting him know, like, hey, we're bringing a giant, uh, scary looking fleet uh, to fly over your city. That's fair. But, you know, they're, that's not how Mandalorians do things. They're all about theatrics. So. <laughs> Um, good for them. Yeah. So they land, it's like, that's Axe's ship now and, um, formerly Gideon's ship and they land and all the, uh, blue, I'm going to say the blue armor Mandalorians all get off and face off with the Death Watch, former Death Watch Mandalorians and the armor, the, the covert. Uh, they have like a big wordless face off and, um, Axe and Paws specifically are like grilling each other their helmets uh well one of them threw their helmets and then the other one it seems um mad that he's not wearing a helmet and the armor comes out with and she clangs her talking hammer yeah and um they she tells them like hey let's all you know let's all uh have a feast together let's prepare a feast for our guests um grief karga gives din a bottle of space whiskey Um, and tells him, you know, maybe share that, maybe wait until there's a smaller uh, audience to share this with. And then he's like, I've got a surprise for you. Come over here. (laughs) And And what a surprise. Oh my God. (laughs) Uh, and then Zelen comes out piloting IG 12, um, who is now like a mech suit basically, uh, or the body of Krang from the Ninja Turtles. (laughs) And, um, grief tells him like, oh yeah, we've, uh, removed his memory circuit, um, which is, uh, horrifying. And we're going to get into that, but they removed his memory circuit and he's just, he's just a vehicle at this point. He's just a vehicle. And, um, 
Yeah, so they, Din is like immediately like, this isn't a good idea. We can't put a kid in this death trap thing and, you know, let him just run around in it. Uh, And Grief is like, at least let him, let's see if he fits in the cockpit. Um, And he gets in and Din is immediately like, oh, wow, this is amazing. I have a big, strong body now, (laughs) a big, strong metal body. Yeah, I, this scene, this was way out of left field, which I loved. I love when Mm. a show does that. This is, this is one of the reasons I love this episode so much. And this is one of the reasons I love this show so much. I, I could not contain my joy upon watching this scene. I mean, it was so weird and inspired and creative, the idea of putting a baby Yoda in the chest cavity of an IG uh, assassin droid. And then the way the scene plays out is such high comedy. <laughs> With, because Grogu now, I guess in a way we got Grogu's first words mm-hmm. because the Anzellans programmed yes and no signals <laughs> into the suit so he can express his annoyance or his rejection of an idea with no and he can and he does express his excitement <laughs> <laughs> with yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I love how immediately like when Din is like, yeah, no, we can't let this happen. He's like, no. Like, what do you, what do you mean? No, it's like, Nope, I'm doing it. Uh, and then he like just smacks his arm away. Cause he's strong. Like it's a really strong, um, droid body. Uh, and then just, yeah, starts running around. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and it's, uh, do you know that's Taika Waititi's voice? Um, that makes sense since yeah, he, he voiced IG 11, right? Yeah. Uh, so they, so, so that I think only adds to the existential horror of this, cre- of this creation. Um, <laughs> Yes, this is fun. It's it's adorable. I love it. I'm laughing my ass off. But when you think about it for too long, this was a uh, you you and I agree that droids are sentient in Star Wars. Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. I I agree that droids are sentient. Do you agree that droids are sentient? I mean, it, I guess it depends. And I don't want to go down a whole like philosophical rabbit hole. But I guess it depends on like I believe they are artificially intelligent, and I believe. Mm-hmm. So they're, I mean, watching R2 and 3PO, they have, they get scared, they get excited. So there's definitely an artificial intelligence there and you, you, you warm up to them because of it. And that scene in Rise of, or sorry, pardon me. Yeah, Rise of Skywalker where 3PO has his, is, there's that scene where they're prepared to erase his memory. Yeah. I, that was like one of the heaviest, most impactful scenes of the whole movie for me. So I absolutely agree that droids have this kind of robotic soul, so to speak. And um, if it's, it's not, I guess, pure sentience in the way of like an organic sentience, but there is, they have personalities, they have hopes, they have aspirations. Yeah. Yeah. Would you, would you call R2D2 a person like in, in the abstract sense of like, 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 okay, like a dog is not a person. A dog is like a beloved pet. You might even call a dog, a, like, a, a, that is a member of our family. That, that like, sure. fam- is a dog and, like, not only that, but he's a family member. Yeah. Um, but you wouldn't call a dog a person. Would you call R2 a person? Would you, might- let, R2, would you let R2 vote in an election? Oh, that's funny. That's, that, that speaks to a Futurama episode we should talk about sometime. <laughs> when the robot vote... Um, pulls into power robotic Richard Nixon. <laughs> um, spoiler alert for Futurama fans. <laughs> I would say no. 
So I would I would draw the line at personhood for a droid. I would, you know, if I was friends with R2-D2, I personally would probably take a laser blast for him mm-hmm. because he is because, so he's so meaningful. He would be so meaningful to me just as he is to Luke. But I'd probably draw the line at personhood. Interesting. Okay, okay. So I think, yeah, again, I, I really, like, I'm not saying that my my um, position on this is the right way of looking at it because I totally get that. I totally get that there is a separation between you know, and something that is artificially created um, and doesn't and displays aspects of a personality and dis, and you know uh, 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 a, d- a demonstration of of what what looks like or or imitates independent thought. Um, but yeah, R two D two. I don't know. I just like I you know we're both kids in the nineties, and we were told by multiple um, pieces of pop culture that you know. Uh, ro- robots can be uh, their own character, and they can be their, They can have feelings, and they yeah. can have fears and and um, wants and desires. Um, so I feel bad for IG Eleven that he's just his brain is just scooped out, and his body is just used as a car or as a <laughs> mech suit, and he has no say about it whatsoever. Imagine if like you die, and <laughs> they just like resurrect your body but they take your brain out and a robot pilots you so yeah, just the exact inverse of this that's pretty alarming and i would feel very um violated so i i see where you're coming from yeah i mean i'm just saying you know justice for ig11 <laughs> um <laughs> but without it we wouldn't get this amazing sequence of grogu piloting <laughs> hg12 down the streets of navarro just like grabbing whatever he wants to eat because nobody can stop him. And just, I just love that, like how it cuts from like the yes, yes, yes to like later. On. It's still, he's still doing it. He's still, um, cause you have, you have nieces and nephews, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you, you've, you've been around a kid of about that age that has like a button, a, a, a toy <laughs> with like an electronic button that makes a noise. And they're just, they don't, they never seem to get tired of it. Um, they just, you know, yeah, the show does such a good job at, at constantly reminding you that Grogu is still a child. Mm-hmm. Whether it's he's thinking with his stomach, he's playing around with his IG-12 suit, the yes, yes. I mean, he's grabbing food from the vendor and and, <laughs> and Din Djarin needs to take out his pocketbook and, and pay the vendor. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so he's very strong in the force, as we'll see in the next episode. But mm-hmm. he doesn't know exactly how to use it or deploy it. And he doesn't really know... But he, he knows he loves his adopted father. He knows how to use the force, but he's still making his way around. So um, uh, I'm glad they they haven't they haven't made Grogu like wise beyond his years or something. He's still a kid making mistakes, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I love that too. Um, he picks up. Uh, are you watching? Do you watch the Bad Batch? No, I've heard you speak so fondly of it, and I really want to, but I haven't I haven't gotten into it yet. Oh, it's it's a lot of fun. I like it a lot. There's um, uh, this this also might be something that comes up on Rebels or in uh, Clone Wars. It's totally inconsequential, but the uh, box of like snacks that that Grogu picks up and starts eating um, looks like this thing that comes up on multiple cartoon series, uh, Star Wars cartoons called Mantel Mix. Oh. Um, really, really small Easter egg if that's what it is. Uh, it doesn't really, it's not important to the plot in any way whatsoever. 
<laughs> um, but it was just something I, I picked up on. And then he also picks up this like fruit and <laughs> uh, just he's trying to hold it away from Din and Din's trying to grab it back and he ends up crushing it and and the juice goes all over the uh, um, I had to look this up. Tarsant is the the alien guy, the alien, or not his name, but like that's the, 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 his species. Okay. Uh, the Tarsant uh, street vendor. And Din is just like, this isn't working for me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is such a like exasperated dad at the end of his rope thing to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's definitely working for us, the audience, but I could see how it would not work for him. The, um, uh, so then, so then we go to the Mandalorian's feast and Bo gives a speech about how, uh, Mandalore is, uh, um, after the bombing, a lot of the dormant species have awakened and there's a lot of magnetic interference, but it's, uh, the atmosphere is not, um, toxic. It's, it's breathable. So I say we, uh, move our entire fleet. Uh, first we're going to take some volunteers and we're going to send basically like a scouting party and then we'll bring in everybody else. So, uh, I need volunteers from both tribes and, uh, Din of course is the first one to, to step forward and say, I, I will go. And, um, <laughs> and also this child, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he can't, he can't talk. We did just give him the ability to say yes or no. Um, but we're not going to ask him. We're just, <laughs> I'm just, he's coming with us. Yeah. Um, and then Costca, Costca Reeves, uh, Sasha Banks is the next one to stand up and say, I will go. And then of course, Axe. Uh, and then because I think because Axe says, yes, pause can't, you know, let him, let his pride win. So, um, so pause is the next one to say, I will go. And then a whole bunch of like Mandalorians whose names we don't know. And then the armor is the last one to yep. be like, I will go. When she said, I will go as well, there was like, you know how we talked about this last podcast episode that I've been kind of skeptical, suspicious of the armor throughout the season, yeah. thinking she might be want, hoping to betray Bo-Katan down the line or something. And when she says, I will go as well, there's kind of a musical cue that plays. It's not, a, it's not exactly a sinister cue, but it's not really a triumphant one. It's kind of a, I don't know what it was. So that just further reinforced, um, like something bad is going to go down on Mandalore they do the same thing again in the next episode. So, I mean, for, like we, we kind of talked about this, like this episode is called the spies mm. and they've been setting us up throughout the season to think like, is one or some of these Mandalore Lorians, uh, are they spies? Are they working for Moff Gideon? Like, are they the ones that whose Beskar remnants we found, uh, Karstativa found in the, in the shuttle. Um, so they're they're I think they're really playing with that expectation and trying yeah. to get you to be suspicious. Uh, in the next episode, there's a moment where Gideon is like, "Oh yeah, you'll find that your fleet is uh, going to be taken off the board, or you know, you're not going. They're not going to um, be able to come help you." And then they cut to the armorer flying towards the fleet uh, with the with all of, like the injured Mandalorians, and I'm like, right. "Oh, like because they kind of linger on her face," and I'm like, "Oh, are they showing like she's about to go blow up the ship, or she's about to sabotage?" Them? Right, right. Um, I'm glad that that wasn't the case. I'm glad about the alternative. But so they get to they fly over Mandalore. Uh, they it's another like that cool shot of the back of uh, the back of the bus where all the Mandalorians are like strapped up and ready for the floor to drop out, yes. and they open up the bottom hatch. And they're looking down and pauses like, oh, it's worse than I thought. 
And then Axe is like, I was here when it happened. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And they're all just kind of like shaking their head at the devastation of their their planet that got glassed. Uh, And then they all drop out and pop their jetpacks and uh, land. They determine that it's safe for uh, the gauntlet to land. And then no sooner than it does, a uh, large sail barge comes sailing across the 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 glass the glass ocean of Mandalore. <laughs> um, this is a cool looking thing. This land boat. I made a note. Cool design in my notes here because yeah, it's uh, just like this weird terrestrial thing that has these sails and looks almost like the silhouette of a spaceship. But but then it's almost like an old galley, and it, it, it's a very mm-hmm. cool look to it. It doesn't make a bit of sense if you think about the physics <laughs> of it. Um, right. it. It just it wouldn't work, but uh, but it's very cool looking. It, it would make an awesome um, action fi- figure oh, yes. vehicle playset. Um, Evan, remind me in 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 uh, Return of the Jedi, Jabba has a sail barge, like yes. a, a, the pleasure Jabba's pleasure barge. I think is what it's referred to. Um, is it? Does it have these like? skis and a sail or is it like everything else every other vehicle in star wars where it just levitates and is propelled, it's, it's propelled got by jets? it's got like a turbo propulsion turbo lift engine for sure it hovers over the sand dunes it does have sails but i think they're more like um cosmetic okay you know to to show kind of the billowy sails um but it's very much i mean it's meant to i think be a space version of like a pleasure yacht yeah but it, it mechanically I think it's like everything else in Star Wars where it, it has repulsor lifts. Yep. Wonder why they couldn't. I, I, guess, <laughs> I guess I guess Mandalore was devastated, so maybe they just don't have repulsor tech to fit to a large vehicle. I don't know. Um, it is very cool looking, though. And uh, it's sailing right toward them, and they get hailed, uh, and they're like, hey, do you have food? <laughs> and Bo is like, yeah, we have food. Oh my gosh, it's other Mandalorians. Yay. Um, and yeah, so this is where uh, Charles Baker and then like the the other guy who's the captain of this boat, who is also a cool character, um, who I don't think, I don't think, I, I think I looked this guy up on IMDb. I don't think he has a name other than Captain. Did you did you catch a name? Did anybody call him by a name? At I any think point? he's just Mandalorian Captain. I think that's how he captain. shows up on IMDb. Yeah, I'm going to double check, but I think that is the case. But it's cool to see these ragtag group of Mandos. Their their helmets are really scarred and dusty, really showing how long they've scrapped on the surface and under the surface of, of Mandalore. So it's kind of a cool third contingent. You've got the blue guys, the night owls. You've got the Death Watch and now this survivor group. Yeah. The um, it's okay. The actor is Charles Parnell, and he is listed as Survivor Captain. Mm. So, and then Charles Baker is 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 Survivor Scout. It's uh, yeah. It's just it's it's weird. It's weird that they don't have names. It's weirder than if they had names. Like yeah, like we talked about this in the previous two episodes. Star Wars has made a living on giving names to the most obscure characters, if only just to sell their action figure. I mean, I remember I, as a kid, I, my first username on AOL.com was a character who doesn't even have a line who talks to Chewbacca for a split second 
in the cantina in a new home, but he had a name. Yep. So I, I use that as my username. So it's weird. Eventually I'm sure they'll get names. I hope so. I, cause I like both these characters a lot and I hope they come back next season. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. Um, yeah, they talk, they talked to Bo about like, yeah, the empire, they punished us cause we refused to surrender. And Bo says, actually I did surrender. Um, and this fills in, I think, a really big story gap that we've been kind of waiting to find out about since season one. Like ever since we first saw Gideon uh, step out of his his Tie Fighter with the with the dark saber, uh, it's like, well, how did he get his hands on that? Um, I know you. I know you're watching the Clone Wars cartoon. Have you gotten to any of the dark saber stuff and and the Mandalorian stuff on that yet? Not yet. We made a little progress since the last podcast episode, but still in the early days. Haven't seen any, haven't seen Bo-Katan, haven't really seen any Mandalorians at all. Okay. So there's um, a lot of like, you know, the uh, pre-Vizsla, like one of Paz's uh, relatives has the the dark saber for a while. Bo-Katan has it at one point. Darth Maul has it briefly. Um, it's, it's, it's a whole crazy journey that it goes on. And then in Rebels, it comes up again and then, and another person has it. Um, so, yeah, it's I, I I've been waiting like for them to fill in that gap of like how did it get into into Moff Gideon's hands? And I like that uh Bo kind of fills that in and says, you know, he um the I she says the ISB offered terms of surrender. Uh do you know what the ISB is? I forgot to look that up. I was hoping you knew. I assumed it's some acronym for the Imperial something or other. Like maybe that's their official designation. Imperial Security Bureau. That makes mm. sense. So she says, "Yeah, they uh, offered uh, to spare our people if I gave if I surrendered. So I gave Gideon the dark saber, um, and the armor says uh, that her people only survived because they were like they were formerly Death Watch and they were hidden on the moon of Concordia." Um, I also like how that gets brought up, but never she like. Never really conclusively answered. Somebody asks, like, are you, uh, you guys are Death Watch, right? And she's like, we were Death, or like, yes, um, <laughs> once we were referred to as that. Uh, she's like, her answer is very vague. It's not like, she doesn't definitively say, we're not Death Watch anymore, right? I would, I'm, I kept expecting, you know, remember we talked, to, when we talked on the first episode of the podcast about episode one of this season and how we both wrongly thought that first scene was a flashback to Din Djarin being uh, christened or being baptized. Mm -hmm. I kept waiting for a flashback this, maybe we'll get it. Although now that Mandalore, that Mandalore arc is closed, maybe not, but of like of the death watch on Concordia, maybe like watching the purge and reacting to it and escaping because that, that is a, a, there's a big gap there where we don't know exactly how, things unfolded for all the death watch folks yeah the um they but they get into like uh Bo says a really great line that um you know basically the the speech from planet of the apes like uh i think she literally says like mandalorian stronger together uh ape, ape strong together oh um <laughs> it, it was um mandalore has always well actually made this different mandalore has always been too powerful for any enemy to defeat Mm -hmm. that's a great one too yeah it's always, it's always been our division that yes us. yeah um 
And yeah, this is a great, it's a great speech. It stirs our people up. Bo gets some amazing speeches and uh, leadership moments in this whole season. Uh, and this is one of them. Then uh, Din comes up and like talks to her and says, you know, that uh, that weapon means nothing to me or my people. Um, not as much as, uh, and uh, we also don't care about things like station or bloodline. We care about honor and loyalty and character. And I was like, I, this got me on my feet, like applauding when he was like, your song, Bo-Katan, is not yet written, yeah. but I will serve you until it is. It's quite a scene. It, yeah, that, I wrote that quote down too, about the song, Not Yet Written. And the fact that Din Djarin is just like everything we want him to be, you know, just focused on honor and duty. It, it's interesting. I, it, that scene... I think I've complained maybe in the past on about this season being where Din Djarin is sometimes sidelined in his own show and Bo-Katan is kind of elevated, which I can't complain about because Bo-Katan is a great character and Sackhoff is a great actress and she does that character justice. And maybe they're planning a spinoff. Like maybe they'll, maybe next year we'll get a, well, with the writer's strike, probably not anytime soon, but if mm. we, if we get a spinoff, a Bo-Katan spinoff, maybe it takes place on Mandalore and it's about, the politics of that or something. So I'm kind of conflicted because I want to see more Mando and Grogu. But this scene, I, I kind of admire that Favreau and Filoni took their main character and had him defer to another. Yeah. Like if you, if you were, if you just uh, popped into the scene and you didn't know anything about the Mandalorian, when you think Bo-Katan is the leader of the show, the main protagonist and Din Djarin mm-hmm. is like a Lieutenant who's kind of a cool side character, right? Yeah. But I think they have so much trust and faith in Din Djarin as a character that they can make him defer to someone else. And I think it's in his character, right? Because he he's so faithful to the creed that if someone is kind of the leader and proves themselves the leader through their, through their character and through their honor, that he would defer to them. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of of two minds. I want to see more Din Djarin and Grogu, but it's kind of a cool confident move to make Din Djarin take a backseat. It, it only, it only elevates his mystique more, mm-hmm. you know, arguably like it only makes him more cool and like allows him to be the strong silent type and not say as much, like you can give lines and dialogue to other characters because that it doesn't take away from Din. It only like adds to his, his, uh, his whole, you know, persona. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I think, yeah, I think it's, he's just such a strong character because he can show up on a, on a show that's named after somebody else and be the most interesting character there and have two episodes dedicated to him. And at the same time, he can show up on his own show and take a back seat and still be one of the most interesting characters. That's very well said. Incredible. Um, yeah, because, uh, yeah, I, it, it, I mean, it also, we, like, it also speaks to Katie Sackhoff and the, the, and, and the writing of the Bo-Katan character and how good she's um, de- been developed that you, I didn't mind for a second that uh, she was so centered and that there was so much uh, about her and, and she was spotlighted so much this, this season. If anything, I thought uh, like that was a, just a plus that, that made it even better than if she wasn't uh, mm. involved or, or so central to yeah. season three. Um, 
Okay. Cause yeah, because she's like, sorry, <laughs> I thought it, I thought it was done with that thought, but I'm like, and one more thing. Yeah. Um, go for it. But it's, yeah, it's just that like, it's the Mandalorian and time and time again, you know, that it's come up like, is arguably, is that Din? Is that referring to another, a different Mandalorian? Like there's so many Mandalorians. Um, and it's, she, Bo-Katan is just such a pivotal piece of Mandalorian history that her story needs to be spotlighted. Her story needs to be front and center. And yeah. I think it was such a smart decision and they pulled it off so well. But it is a it is a delicate balancing act. Um, For sure. Yeah. Okay. They uh oh, I did want to ask you, what how would you describe Bo and Din's relationship? Okay, well, I can tell you how I want it to be. I mm. want them to get married and raise Grogu desperately. Like they, there was that scene in, and I don't want to be like I know a lot of people get a lot of mileage out of quote unquote shipping characters, yeah. you know, putting them forcing them into a relationship. I don't want to be that guy. But in this case, I mean, it just makes so much sense. There's that scene with the dart training where I think it's Bogotan who actually puts the darts on Grogu and she just says, oh, your dad's proud of you. And my dad was the same way. And I was like, oh, this all makes so much sense. Um, it probably will never happen because Din Djarin is such, he's defined by duty and, and by, you know, it, and who knows, but, and, and Bogotan has a, you know, a civilization to rebuild, but um that would be cool. As it is, the reality of it, I think, is they're friends, they trust each other. And honestly, Din Djarin is kind of the wind beneath Bo-Katan's wings. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if she would have the confidence to do everything she's done in this season without his vote of support. So I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the dynamic. Yeah, I would... Um... I would describe them as, uh, I, I mean, I feel exactly the same way. I wanted that final <laughs> shot of Din and, and Grogu in their, in their new, like, little house to end with, like, and then, like, Bo comes around the corner with, like, a steaming mug of, you know, blue tea or whatever and just kind of, like, sits soup. next to him. Pog soup. Um, and, like, sits next to him. Uh, and they just, like, watch their, their little child play on, in, the, in the water. Um, but no, really, yeah, so far what it's been, it's very like my, and my, my brain immediately goes to like Lincoln Zelda, um, at least oh. in the, in the classic games recently, they've kind of made them Nintendo has kind of like leaned a little towards there being like a romantic interest between those two characters. I don't, I don't like it. This isn't the legend of Zelda podcast, but I could <laughs> That's jump a good my, idea though. I, yeah, I would buy into that podcast. Um, but I, I could go on a whole soapbox about that and how they they should never be a romantic couple. Um, so please don't force it, Nintendo. But that's kind of how I, like Bo and Din are. Like they both have a job. They both have. They're both hyper focused on you know their mission and yep. this this thing that they have to do and like you know accomplish. And they're just um, a romantic. They're like they yeah. they 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 get by without needing or they don't have any interest in. Uh, anything to do with like romance or sexuality or whatever. And that's just, it's just not a concern. It's a distraction if anything. So yeah. Um, there's no, we ain't got time for that. <laughs> um, but I do want to see it. I just, I, I think know, they're great. Right? <laughs> who, like who wouldn't? Yeah. Like him saying to to her, your song is not writ- yet written. I will serve you until it is, is like the man, the tough guy Mandalorian version of basically <laughs> a proposal, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So, 
Um, all right. So then we get to arguably my favorite scene in this episode. Oh, yeah. Where they are uh, heading to the Great Forge on this sailboat. And um, Axe and Paz are sitting across from each other playing space chess. And yep. Axe is like, you, uh, you can't move an enforcer like that. And Paz is like, it's a flank jump. <laughs> says only the wing guard can flank jump well the enforcer moves like a wing guard when it's flanking which sounds like bullshit um, <laughs> i know i was trying to divine during the scene whether they each side truly had different rules for the game mm-hmm. or if paused was making up as he went along i'm leaning toward the latter yes i absolutely <laughs> I, i'm so glad you said that because i am too i'm leaning absolutely towards pause was cheating yeah either cheating or like he got the rule wrong, and when he was called out on it, he was like, he just didn't accept that, so yes. he just made up some bullshit to, be, to justify That's more it. likely, yeah. Yeah, because um, his pride, like, wouldn't let him admit, like, I fucked up and made a bad move. Um, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it is, uh, it's hilarious. And then they, um, he, like, stands up, and he's like, <laughs> submit or fight. And uh, this is, this is why I like Axe so much. He's just like, can you believe this? Just that line delivery was so good. The casual, like, like he's not even talking to anyone in particular. <laughs> yeah. He's like, can you believe this? And then boom, like pops his jetpacks, flies at him. They have a really cool fight. They're both like, I think pause pulls out the vibro blade. Yep. Um, and, uh, somebody, I think Bo is like, Oh, you know, should we stop them? Or Din says like, should we stop them? He's like, no, neither side can, can step in. Um, and then Grogu, who is on an A side, like he's not, he's not, um, an independent party in this. He is on the side of the covert, uh, arguably steps in. I mean, I'm glad he does, but like, it goes against the line before that, that said neither side can step in. Anyway, he steps in, he stops the fight. He like, he's like, no, um, and just holds them apart. That. There are three great scenes, I think, in this episode. The first one is the introduction of the suit. And yes, 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 yes. Uh, The third one we'll get to. And the second one is this one. I, my heart melted at this scene because it it came out, like, I I didn't know how they were going to resolve this. And I did not think for a minute Grogu with his suit was going to step in, but he inserts himself. It's such a cool character moment for him. Inserts himself and then taps the no, 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 no. He's so hurt and scared by these two sides fighting. It's all captured in just the no, the mechanical no. And I mean, my heart just melted because it's Grogu being so sweet and genuine mm-hmm. and protective of his new family. And uh, and then it's it's bookended by that scene where Bo turns to Din and says something like, you, you taught him really well. And Din says, I didn't teach him that. And then that also reminds you, oh, right, like he had that time yeah. with Luke and he's, he's, he was trained as a Jedi briefly as a child. And I, I, I can't get enough of that scene. I'm so glad you love it too. That's a really good point. I forgot that like that's, um, that, that Din was like, I didn't teach him that. And that, you know, that's, that's uh, him kind of showing that he has internalized part of the Jedi philosophy yeah. of trying to resolve conflicts through nonviolence if possible. Um, that's a really good call out. I didn't even think of it that way. Yeah. Um, so then, uh, <laughs> so then there's something off the starboard bow. Oh no, it's a giant. I just wrote down a giant and Kylosaurus. 
emerges from the ground. We don't get a full shot of this thing, but it has like a, a big like club tail. Like, you know, the dinosaur I'm talking about and a Kylosaurus. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, like just destroys this thing. Uh, take definitely takes out a few Mandalorians. Like yep. you see them, like their jetpacks exploding. Um, it's pretty, pretty, pretty intense. And uh, they go down into the mines uh, to escape it. Um, this is also, and this thing, this thing largely uh, tips the scales in our ongoing cage match between space dinosaurs and droids. Um, yeah, yeah, there are just so many mega, mega dinosaurs in this in this season. Uh, I, again. You brought up a point they might be so ferocious and attack and destroy each other before mm-hmm. they and the droids could just sit on the sidelines. So that's still a possibility. Yeah. And uh only only one of these dinosaur things is capable of flight so far that we've seen. So um if uh you know droids can at the very least they can like use a jetpack. So they could kite they could just kite these dinosaurs, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um who knows? We'll have to we'll, we'll we can get into that later. Uh, they go to the Mandalorians go down to the mines and this is the uh, the decrepit Great Forge and um, they're kind of sad about that. They and then they uh, turn around and they're like, oh my gosh, there's more survivors because uh, they see some jetpacks flying in and it's not uh, survivors. It is um, Imperials in Beskar armor with jetpacks yeah. uh, and they're PvP fighting back and forth, <laughs> shooting at each other. Um, Axe is like, oh, I can, uh, I can make a break for it. There's a hole in the ceiling and I can get to the fleet and get reinforcements and pause. Uh, I, I just love this little moment where they work together. Oh, I forgot to mention when they, when the Ankylosaurus smashes the ship, pause and Axe have another little moment of like finally putting aside their differences because Grogu can't fly. Um, so they both like surround him, grab him and fly him off the ship and save him. I love that they put their arms under his arms and like lift them up. It's great. It's beautiful. Um, and so then pause and axe. Uh, this is their final moment. Um, their final friendship moment. Pause is like, I'll lay some cover fire for you. And, you know, uses mini gun and axe flies out through the hole in the ceiling. Um, and yeah, we're, we're going to get to it in a second, but I was really hoping like, we're going to continue seeing the development of the friendship between Paz and Axe. Uh, and they, they took that away from us. Yeah. I uh, never forget what they took from us. Um, <laughs> uh, so they, the Imperial Beskar clad, um, what are they called? Uh, Beskar troopers. Yeah. Did they have a name? Uh, they're definitely, you know, more effective and intimidating than your, your, you know, your rank and file stormtrooper. They um, jetpacks, strong weaponry, covered in the Beskar armor, and they take out a lot of those Mandos before they kind of regroup and and push back. They do. Um, they they retreat uh, to what is obviously a trap, and yes. <laughs> Mandalorians follow them into what is obviously a trap. Um, the door is shut behind them, and then in front of them, and trap them in, and separate them all from Din. Um, and Din, uh, this uh, this blows my whole theory out of the water that Din can take oh. on as many bipedal humanoids as you throw at him. Because they, they, Moff Gideon sat down and like he heard me say that and he did the numbers and he was like, well, if it's exactly like 27, uh, that's, <laughs> that's one too many. So um, they wrap him up in their like razor wire and um, take his weapons away and take him away. Um, Before we get into 
the next stuff, which I really want to, I'm sure we both want to unpack for a while. Don't, I'm not complaining because I don't want our hero to be gone, but why? So um, after watching it a second time, I thought at first that it was contrived and like only Din had gotten through and he was blocked off, but I guess he was, he was blocked off with a few other Mandalorians that were quickly dispatched. So, but if you were Gideon, wouldn't you just end it now with Din Djarin? Yep. Why keep him around? Because he's a Saturday morning cartoon uh, villain. Okay. And okay. he's not the main character. It's not called the Gidalorian. Um, yeah. It's the... <laughs> so, yeah. because like, If he had some information or if he still wanted to like extract some Mandalorian DNA, even though you can't because... Mandalorians are like a, a tribe of people who don't have a share a common, you know, ethnicity. Well, maybe some of the night owl folks, but that I was like, I was just a little, I mean, may, he has a special animosity towards him. So maybe you wanted to keep him to torture him or something, but that it felt a little forced. I don't know. The, yeah, the, um, like my, the, my devil's advocate brain, the first thing that I would say is, uh, the, like the only justification I could think of is he wants to keep Din alive as bait to try to get Grogu uh, okay. to be brought to him because Grogu is still a valuable asset. But that proves to not be true in the next few minutes, in the first few minutes of the next episode, because he immediately sends his guy, as soon as Grogu shows up, he sends his guys to like go kill Grogu. Yeah. And they're trying to kill him. So he doesn't even want Grogu alive. I have no idea why he doesn't just kill Din. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not the end of the world, and I was okay in the moment, in part because what comes next is so powerful that um, I'm willing to forgive any kind of, um, uh, you know, convenience, plot convenience. Yeah, it's um, it, it happens because it needs to happen. It's yeah. very much like, you know, the they're like, well, we want we want to raise the stakes and we want to make, um, uh, you know, Din have to be rescued by Bo or whatever. But, um, yeah, they didn't really find a way to justify it. <laughs> But it's okay. It really doesn't. I, I don't mind it uh, either. No. Um, so, yeah. So then Bo does what she should have done right away and just takes the dark saber and starts cutting a hole uh, behind them to, to get out. Um, she definitely doesn't cut this hole big enough for Paz to ever be able to get <laughs> through it anyway. So, <laughs> so there's no chance that he's making it out. Um, but he basically steps forward. He's like, I'll cover the rear. And tells everyone to go. And then he he's just taking these guys out one by one as they're landing. Um, just uh, I, I, I thought this was funny. Some of them, some of these guys like land and like face off with paws. And the way he kills them is just by pushing them off the edge, <laughs> even though they're wearing jetpacks. Um, but I you noticed know. that, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he's doing great. But. Uh, eventually, like he, I think he shoots the door because in Star Wars, that's how you either lock a door or unlock a door, depending on what the plot needs. Um, and he locks it shut behind him, tells Bo to take everyone and go. And then the um, the pra- three Praetorian guards that uh, that Gideon special ordered from Amazon, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he got next day delivery, same day delivery, thank goodness, yeah. and they show up and. They take out a very tired, exhausted pause. Do you think if pause wasn't already like, like had to battle his way through, you know, a hundred other uh, Beskar troopers, do you think he could have taken on three Praetorian guards at full strength? 
I think it would have been a drawn out battle, but I think he still would have fallen. Yeah. Um, but I got to say, and we talked about this. I don't think either of us is like super high on Paz. Like he's a, he's a cool character. He's like that cool side Mandalorian with like the mini gun and the different helmet. And he's just kind of a cool guy there, man. I, in a, in like 90 seconds, I immediately fell in love with him and then had to deal with the pain of losing him. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was, it was just, there haven't been that many like high stakes in this season, but then immediately there were in this episode and that whole exchange, man, I was glued to the TV screen. So Gideon asked Bo-Katan to give up the dark saber and he'll spare them. And, uh, and we learned just the scene earlier that Gideon had tried this gambit before and betrayed them. Mm-hmm. So it's just this awesome thing where, where Bo-Katan like looks at Paz and he nods and says, this is the way it's like this unspoken thing and starts firing and everyone starts firing into the door. She turns, she does an about face opens, you know, cuts the, the door in the back. It's just this awesome last stand for Paz. Um, you compared it, I think to code of hero from the second oh, God, season yeah. of beast wars. Yep. I just, and, and then it cut. And then the, the last shot is his lifeless body there on the platform. And it, and it cuts to this kind of sad somber music. And it was just a really heroic farewell. If a Mando is going to die, that's the best way, according to their creed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, 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 you, you die in battle and you, you, you uh, go forever into Valhalla to drink yeah. and fight. Right. Essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's uh it's sad between between this moment and the 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 uh, the we are Mandalorians speech earlier in the season. Uh, they really elevated Paz in season three, and um, I think they did a great job of like lifting him up and lifting him up and and making you care about him, and then uh, giving him a, a very heroic death. Um, and I'm glad they didn't shy away from it. I I will miss Paz dra- like tremendously. Uh, I do, I didn't want him to die, but I th- I do think like it, they needed to there needed to be a loss on the good guy's side. There needed I, to be a significant loss. And um, this I was 100% a very agree. one. Yeah. Very impactful. Uh, and yeah, that is where the episode ends on the, on that just like shot of pause, pauses lifeless. We don't even see like his eyes or his face. It's just, we see his helmet and and just communicates so much. Like this, these are his last moments. Uh man. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I'm getting emotional just remembering it. I, having to watch it a second time actually hurt because I knew it was coming. And, but I mean, it's such a badass way to go. And, and so one thing we didn't mention his he shoots his minigun for so long that it it glows red and eventually overheats, and then he like he uses it as a battering ram to knock a guy down. It's such a cool, yes. such a cool way to go. Yes. Uh, anything else about chapter 23, the spies before we move on to the final, final episode? Nothing for me that, that remains my favorite episode of the season in part because of the cuteness of Grogu in the suit in part because of Paz's heroic end. And, um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about the finale. I do think, uh, that was the best episode of the season, but my favorite is still the pirates one, just because of personal bias. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think Base the spies, pirates. yeah, absolutely. I think the spies though is, is uh, objectively the best episode of, mm-hmm. of the season. 
Um, and it's a fantastic one. And then the return, uh, the finale is that is also a very good episode. Um, it's sort of like the part two of the spies. Um, it starts like immediately the next moment, uh, Bo is like running with her group and there she's like planting a bomb and like blowing up all the troopers chasing them. Yeah. Uh, then we see Din being dragged through the corridors by just like, I think just two guys, um, <laughs> I think it was originally four, but I guess maybe the other two broke off to go try to fight Paz and got killed. Who knows? Uh, either way, they make it much easier for him to escape, and he does. And um, he like uses a lot of flamethrower work in this episode. Uh, he like uses flamethrower and like cuts, like stabs a guy, and then um, then they almost turn it around. They almost get him back, but then Grogu shows up and just no, uh, and and just cuts his uh cuts him loose and, yep. and joins the fight and helps him um and grogu and din at full strength are ready to go take on well actually not at full strength because he doesn't have any of his weapons any of his That's trinkets right. uh but it's like uh he, he's become like it's like level one of a video game or like you know, you gotta you gotta like acquire the knife and then use the knife to get the gun and then use the gun to get the bigger gun. <laughs> That's a really good analogy. It's kind of like the beginning of every Metroid game yeah. where <laughs> Samus is like a badass and then suddenly she like falls down and the, the suit depletes its energy and she has to start from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But luckily, luckily he gets put into a situation where he only has to fight two at a time and uh is able to like collect their weapons each time he beats them. Yeah. Um <laughs> God, just the impracticality of how they design base defenses and stuff. Like the, the the holes, the, the bottomless pits that are yeah. everywhere in Imperial bases. And these guys' whole entire job is just to stand like in formation in this corridor, in sections of this corridor, on these precipices, and just watch <laughs> like their little section. And if these two guys are getting attacked the other six or eight guys across the hallway can't be firing ranged weapons at them to help them out. I, I don't. I agree. It does make for an amazing f uh, action set piece. That yes. whole thing where, um, well, uh, yeah, we'll get into it. R5 is, uh, does, has lots of assists in this fight. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Okay. I think, I think I'm skipping ahead some things. So the, uh, what's next in sequence? They're oh. like, one thing I wanted to mention, which I've meant to bring up on every single episode of this podcast, but which I will finally remember to do so now, there is one cool visual flourish that this season has done a lot of, and it's it's um, it definitely is in this episode. It's the camera attached to like a wing of a spaceship, so you get that mm. like cool angle of um, it's like a little oblique angle of like where the, the spaceship is flying. They do it, they pepper it throughout this season, and I just love it. It's such a cool little visual flourish. We see a lot of, like, jetpack cam, too, like, when, yeah, the, yeah. when they're all fighting each other, and, like, Bo is just, like, flying towards Susan and impaling him with this dark saber <laughs> from behind and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a cool camera shot. Uh, yeah. I love that they how they use that and put you right in the action. Um, so... Oh man! Another little funny thing is like when Din, when uh, Grogu rescues Din, he just immediately starts like spraying his face with this like healing <laughs> mist. Yes, yes, I love that. <laughs> it must be some kind of Bacta solution or something, right? That permeates through Beskar armor <laughs> to heal your skin. I don't know. 
Sure. I, I love that. He's like, and he's like waving it away. Yeah. It's a nice little <laughs> moment between them. Oh my God. All right. Yeah. So, uh, so Din contacts R5 and basically tells him like, we need you to, we need you to be brave. We need you to do something here and, yep. and, and uh, you know, open up the shields. And yeah, we see R5, like, again, being like being coward, kind of hiding, but then yep. getting inspired to join the fight and help out. Um, and he rolls in and he finds a port to jack into. Um, and a mouse droid uh, <laughs> catches on to what he's doing and is like, hey, you're not supposed to be here. Uh, and R5's like, no, I'm a rebel um, and I'm a badass now. So uh, get out of here. And the mouse droid leaves and comes back later with more mouse droids. But um, in the in the in the meantime, uh, a lot of stuff is happening all at once. Like Bo is fighting all these jetpack dudes, and Axe is jetpacking up back to the ship. And he tells everybody on the ship to get out and get onto like a shuttle. And yep. he's going to pilot the ship and and uh, uh, do something awesome later. Um, I at this point. So this episode requires a lot of suspension of dis- disbelief with the mechanics of the Mandalorian suits and jetpacks. Um, everything is so awesome. Like as a kid, this is everything you as a 13 year old kid wants to see, right? Mandalorians flying through space and like, le- like jumping from a frigate and landing on like a drop ship. Mm-hmm. The fact that Axe flies from the surface of the planet to the, the frigate in in space i don't i it's a hard buy for me uh and then they're all like zipping out and landing like without with very gracefully on the ships it's a little hard to believe but the 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 um, emotional rise you get out of it is kind of unparalleled so i see why they they cut some some uh physical corners there yeah absolutely they play it fast and loose with physics all over <laughs> yeah. the place in, in these in the show um uh, from the sail barge on up to every everything to do with jetpacks. So there's two reasons why this is absurd. Uh, one, they show in a previous episode where Magnar um, gets taken that they run out of fuel Thank you. pretty quickly. Thank you. Um, so like, yeah, they're chasing him, and I don't know. I don't know the exact distance from the surface to atmosphere, but I imagine that it's farther than from their cave to this raptor nest, and that they would have ran out of fuel. They really got themselves in trouble with that episode because I, I appreciate that line in that episode with the Raptor because, oh yeah, of course the jetpack runs out of fuel. Like that makes sense. And and then they were there that they established the cannon with that line. And then they're like, well, we, we have to we have to destroy that cannon in this episode because <laughs> they have not only do they have limitless fuel, it seems like, but and we'll see this in the again, triumphant, amazing beautiful to watch scene of all the Mandalorians like meeting in midair and flying towards the troopers. And then the clash of the troopers, they went from kind of sort of being able to control their jet packs that are attached to their back to being able to move around like Tony Stark in the Iron Man suit <laughs> all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other, the other logistical problem is um, we talked about this in the, in the same episode with the, with the Raptor. Um, space is, is freezing cold <laughs> there and Axe is able to just fly into space wearing his suit uh so either they need a campfire for warmth or <laughs> their suits insulate them against even the 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 cold freezing vacuum of space um yeah but i guess it's just whichever the plot needs to happen 
so <laughs> have we and I was I was actually about to ask has Star Wars ever established that you can freeze to death in space? Yes, it has. Leia almost does. Yeah, that I'm sure that will remain for many decades and centuries. A very uh, a very polarizing scene uh, in the Last Jedi. We could we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but yeah, um, it showed her body begin to freeze right, and then she mm-hmm. summons the Force, and so. I think that's the only example of someone very rarely do we see someone outside of a ship in space, right? Unless they're, they're dead. Yeah. You'd think they would use that as like a form of execution or something more often, um, especially like the empire, like, you know, making somebody like, are you into the expanse at all? Have you seen the expanse on Amazon? No. Oh, that's, it's a cool like space sci-fi show. And that's like, it comes up a lot where you get, you get like, if you do something wrong, you get spaced, you basically get like shoved out of an airlock. Um, That's a bad way to go. Oh, yeah. Um, there's also just like a fun little thing in Rogue One. K2SO mentions it like they're trying to get into the scare face and they're like, well, what if they don't let us in? He's like, well, I guess uh, we'll all be annihilated in, in the deep, cold uh, recesses of space. And <laughs> K2 is like, not me. I could survive in space. <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry. Um, the... Uh, yeah, R5 starts opening up the, uh, shields, like, Din gets to the, to the, uh, kind of, it's kind of like the Phantom Menace, like, um, four shield doors. Um, yes, I didn't even make that connection. I knew it reminded me visually of something. It's the, yeah, Duel of the Fates, the final lightsaber battle in Phantom Menace, of course. Yeah. And they almost, like, do the thing where the troopers on the other side are, like, doing the Darth Maul thing, like, you know, just waiting for their turn. Yeah. Like, come on through this door. As soon as this door opens, I'm messing you up. Um, and, yeah, R5 is just opening these doors one by one so he can get through and, like, take this 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 boss battle in stages um, <laughs> <laughs> and upgrade his gear uh, after winning each each little fight. Um, yeah, he gets, like, a, he... He uses his knife. There's a really cool moment where he like stabs the guy with the with the vibro blade, and he's about to fall off the cliff, and he like grabs the blade to get it back and lets the guy fall. Um, yeah, he gets, he gets a shield from one of them. It's it's such a cool like hearing Din Jaren yell R five next shield, you know R five next shield, and then just like taking these guys down not not with total ease, but he he goes. For, I noticed Din goes for the knees and ankles a lot, which is smart. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, but there's, it's just a cool set piece. And I want to call out total props to Brendan Wayne and Latif Crowder, yes. who are the two gentlemen who play. I mean, obviously, uh, Pedro Pascal is in the suit often, but for a lot of the stunts and action scenes, it's Brendan Wayne and Latif Crowder. And they kicked ass this episode and this whole season. So props to them. Yeah, you're right that he does a lot of like going for the knees. Like he, um, it, it writers write in writer uh, listeners write in if, if I'm wrong about this, but it looks to my eye, it looks like a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu like fighting style where like uh, one of the principles of Brazilian jiu-jitsu is like when you're on your back on the ground, that's actually a position of power. Um, like in most fights you think, Oh, that means you're about to lose uh, cause you're like flat against the ground. But in BJJ, like that gives you so much leverage and you can use that to take out somebody's like weak points, which is their ankles and their, their knees um, and, and take them down to the ground where you are. Um, oh. And that's a lot, that seems to be a lot of like Din's fighting style and the uh, choreography of those two um, 
Uh, you just said their names, uh, Latif Crowder. And Brendan Wayne, who interestingly, Wayne. I looked this up, previously they were kind of relegated to the end of the credits, you know, mm-hmm. when, but uh, as of this season, and I think it's, it's a great move from the producers, their names I think are listed just after Pedro Pascal and the other, you know, um, main leads because without Wayne and Crowder, there's no Mandalorian. So it's a cool way to elevate stunt people who don't often get a spot in the, you know, get a, a get in the spotlight. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, very cool. Yeah. It's not like, uh, David Prowse, uh, uh, showing up to conventions and like complaining about like, <laughs> he poor, didn't even know that they took, took the voice away from him. Poor David Prowse. I read recently, not only did they take the voice away from, which was absolutely the right move, let's be fair, but yes. they could have communicated it better. But I realized, I found out recently that in the climactic scene on Bespin, in Empire Strikes Back, when Vader reveals Luke's parentage, they didn't tell Prowse. And later on, he complained. I think he meant to, he 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 read the line, "Obi-Wan is your father," right? That's uh, in order to stop any leaks on set. You know, they didn't want people to know that huge reveal, which worked. But he later on, Prowse complained that he he would have played the scene differently in terms of his body language if because he, he didn't even know he was Luke's father. So. Um, I think Prowse has some legitimate complaints. Uh, he was kind of mistreated by Lucas, unfortunately. I think so too. I think it, yeah. I think it was, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really sad. It's a sad story. Um, but, but it's, uh, yeah, it's something that Star Wars has done for a long time where you have like a guy in the suit and another person doing the voice or doing like the emotional acting. Yep. And, um, and it's done really, really well when they put it all together, uh, both with Darth Vader and with, Din Djarin. Um he uh yeah anything anything else about this uh force force shield fight No uh, apart from the bottomless pits which bothered me I I really <laughs> loved the choreography of that and the and and I did enjoy Din Djarin going full master chief basically like running out of ammo running out of, and like finding weapons littered on the battlefield to kind of regroup uh and improvise uh, I love a good improvisational fight scene, and that—that's what this was. Yeah, it's like when you throw you throw all your action figures in the same box, and then you're like, "Oh, I can't find Din's gun, but I've got this extra uh, stormtrooper blaster." So I'll yes, just, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've got like ten of those. Oh, and oh, and we never see him with like a, a sword or a baton. Like, let's see what it looks like with that in his hand. Oh, cool, yeah, <laughs> and he's really good at wielding it. Um, R5 also gets like his biggest hero moment here where all of the mouse droids come back. Um, I, I would think that if the mouse droid is like, Hey, this, this thing is hacking into the system. I need to go get help that it's going to go get <laughs> help that it's going to go get like some stormtroopers or somebody with a gun, not other mouse droids that are just equally ineffective. That's fair. And that's probably what they would do. But the visual on that the, the sight gag of like five or six mouse droids with their like little alarms they're like police <laughs> i mean the mouse droid has always been kind of a punchline in star wars and i feel like this is the funniest usage of the mouse droid we've seen <laughs> um but yeah it's a good call they would have gone they would have like their purpose is to what ferry messages and to alert things yeah. so yeah they would not go back to the mouse droid contingent and get get, get recruit and recruit back up there like, what would those, if, if R5 they didn't jetpack away, physically, what would they have been able to do to stop him? Yeah, they just kind of surround him and they're just kind of an <laughs> annoyance, right? <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> hey, stop it. Hey, stop it. Hey, stop it. Hey, stop it. <laughs> I guess after a while, you'd eventually be like, all right, fine. Oh, um, one mm-hmm. thing you mentioned in the climactic scene of the previous episode, the fact that Paz pushed some troopers off to their deaths, but they could have kind of like, in theory, they could have activated their jetpacks before then. There's another inversion of that in this where R5 jetpacks down to the platform in order to open the gate. But before he opens those gates, he, or the energy fields, he he kind of creeps up to the edge and looks over and and has this like scared, cowardly reaction to the bottomless pit below. But Mm -hmm. he just jetpacked down there. So he, you know, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes internal logic falls apart in Star yeah. Wars, but you know, it's not uh it's not even science fiction, it's just space fantasy. Yes, so that's, that's true. It is I'm more okay fantasy than science fiction in the end. Um so then uh yeah, Din gets through the last uh force shield. Um, and then they go through this hallway where we see just these vats of uh of figures in liquid, green liquid. And they are all Moff Gideon. Dun, dun, dun. There's like at least eight of them. Um, maybe even more. But they're, one of them like opens its eyes as soon as they look closely at it. Um, and they just decide, oh no, F this. Uh, yep. we're, we're blowing this right up. Um, which, okay. We see Gideon watching like the little dots moving on his map. And he's like, oh, they're here. Oh, they're yep. here. We need to reinforce here. Why doesn't he stop them from blowing up his clones? I didn't, that bothered me too. So, well, one, a lot of that bothered me. One, how does he, like, how, did, how what is he using to identify them on the map? Like, do they have, I know, I know they revealed in the episode um, with Jack Black and Lizzo that everyone has a chain code and that's kind of cool. I mm-hmm. guess it's it's kind of like your, social security number slash like identification tag like it's in kind demolition of, man you just have yeah. a chip in your hand it's kind of cool that everyone in the universe has something like that so maybe they're tapping into that but Gro- grogu would he have one and also grogu is like a little green dot on the map which like <laughs> did, did like the programmer go in there and give like different dots for different people anyway so <laughs> but yeah as soon as he saw where they were just converge on them and destroy them right yeah uh, he waits for them to get through this gauntlet. He waits for them to destroy his clones. He waits for them to get to the main command room. And only then does he confront them. So yeah. it is weird. Yeah. Yeah. I, if it were me and like I had these, because he gets upset about them blowing up his clones. It's not like they're in, in, this is an expendable resource to him, right? Like That's his he, whole reason for living, right? The clones. Yeah. So if you're gonna have your three Praetorian guards and they can, you know, mess up anything, have them go there, have them guard that room. Uh, so whatever, but it needed yeah, to happen yeah. for the plot. So <laughs> like we've said multiple times, it's the next thing that needed to happen. So that's what happened. <laughs> yes. And and I'm okay with it because <laughs> uh, then we get to see this play out. So they blow up that room. Uh, then we kind of check back in with the Mandalorians. They found this uh, this chamber where all of this vegetation is growing. And it's like the, the scout captain talks about, like, we tried to plant farms. Um, you know, we, we tried to restore life and build something here, but um, this is as far as we got, kind of. And uh, we see, like, some really, really cool jetpack on jetpack battles yeah. going on. The armorer is, like, joining in and just 
still using her hammer and tongs, but now flying around with them, uh, messing people up. Yeah. Um, Bo is just like like a flying blade and just <laughs> impaling people and spinning and probably chopping limbs off. We don't see a lot of like limb dismemberment, but it has to be happening in this fight. Surely. Um, and what happens next? Uh, they, yeah, so they, they confront Gideon and he like puts on his cool helmet and the Praetorian guards come out and start messing Bo, uh, start messing Din up. Bo uh, flies in out of nowhere and joins the fight. Yep. And then this is where, yeah, he sends the, um, he sends, who does he send after Grogu? Is it the Praetorian guards or is it? Yeah, I think um, Gideon's about to land a really serious blow on Din Djarin and Grogu somehow intervenes and he's Gideon six, the Praetorian guards on Grogu who kind of backs backs up into the control room. The Praetorian guards chase him and the door closes, at which point I'm like, if they put a finger, if they lay a finger on Grogu, I am going to riot. And I've never, I've been, I'm so protective of this puppet, you know? Um, but yeah, that's. Yeah. And, and Grogu outfoxes them just by going up like about three feet <laughs> higher than they can reach. Um, you know, even though they have vibro spears and, and things that they can just throw at it. <laughs> uh, but he, yeah, he just does some like Yoda flips and jumps around yep. and they just can't, they can't get this wily <laughs> little baby. Um, so, yep. Uh, how did the Praetorian guards get taken out of the fight? So I write that down. So, um, Din is, Din, like me, furious and fearful about Grogu's well-being, uh, tries to chase after them. I think at that point, Gideon, you know, gets a, like a grappling hook around his neck, pulls him back to the fight. And it's looking pretty bad for Din Djarin. That's when Bo-Katan comes out of the big fight in that empty space with all the troopers, lands on the platform, pulls out the Darksaber in a badass flourish, says, I got this to Din Djarin, at which point he runs after Grogu. And then they right. kind of tag team the Praetorian guards with, which is such a cool scene of, of Din Djarin fighting with his pistols and with his knives and Grogu playing, like supporting from afar with his force powers. So oh, it's a really right. cool convergence of physical melee projectile attacks with force pushing. Yeah, that's right. We get to, yeah, we see Grogu using his force push um, a couple of, Yeah, that is cool. Um, man. Okay. So then, uh, then we see Axe like up in his ship and he's getting attacked and, uh, he decides that he is going to use the ship as a weapon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and just crash it right into the base to take out the whole entire base. Um, we cut back and forth kind of between that and Bo and Din and Grogu, uh, 3v1 against Gideon um yeah do you I kind of I kind of just like stopped writing and just like just watched mouth oh, like jaw open this fight you want to kind of I don't blame you yeah it's a lot's going on there Gideon demands the dark saber Bogotan refuses immediately he he grips her hand in his armored glove and just destroys the handle of the dark saber um it's looking pretty rough even three-on-one, Gideon's pretty f formidable. 
And I think it's at that moment when the cruiser enters the upper atmosphere and crashes into the base. Now, question for you was, did Axe flag that he was, for the other Mandalorians, that he was going to make this maneuver? Because just as it's coming into like the opening, the crater, the Mandalorians start flying out. Like they just saw it. We're like, oh, we better skedaddle. <laughs> like, uh, it's a very interesting gambit to destroy the base like that. But mm-hmm. uh, maybe he felt like that was the only way. And um, I don't think Axe needed to tell anybody because I think every Mandalorian looked at it and they thought like, oh, well, I'm a Mandalorian and I know the coolest thing, the coolest looking thing that I could do in this situation. So that's what he's going to do. Okay, Um, that's fair. (laughs) (laughs) And then so the the freighter, the frigate crashes into the planet, engulfs the whole platform and the cavern in fiery explosions it engulfs Gideon. I'm mm-hmm. assuming he's gone, and and would have engulfed our trio of heroes, except it's revealed in like a close-up shot and then a medium shot that Grogu, being the amazing creature he is, has crafted this bubble of air, protective air, around himself, Dinjarin, and Bo-Katan, and the flames are just kind of rippling over. This, the safety of that bubble. It's it's a such a cool shot visually, yeah. but also cool because it demonstrates that Grogu, when in peril, can summon an amazing force energy. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's such a cool tableau. Just that like the flame, the circle of the sphere of flame just yes. surrounding these three. Bo like with her cool looking like light shield out in front protecting Grogu, and then. Um, it's just, it's, it's all mom, dad, and, and baby. Yes. It's like <laughs> one day. Uh, yeah. Um, and so then, uh, they, yeah. So then they, they, all of the Mandalorians congregate at the living waters. Mm-hmm. And, um, I kind of questioned this in that, in the episode of Ragnar gets taken by the Raptor. Uh, he doesn't technically complete his oath in that episode. So, like, we talked about how he has a loophole if he doesn't That's really right. want to wear his helmet. He didn't actually say, repeat those words back. But they do They do fill in. Uh, they, they complete that last puzzle piece because um, we see him, like, standing at the water's edge and uh, the armor is kind of doing the same, like, call and response thing with him again. Um, and then Grogu steps up to be, like, the next one to get, I guess, baptized. Yep. Um, and... The armor is like, well, he's, you know, they've they've said, I think this exact line before, he's too young to speak and therefore too young to take the creed. And Din is like, yeah, but I'm his dad, so um, I can make decisions. I can sign him up for soccer or, you know, whatever, <laughs> or, or, or like the music program, the after school music program, whatever I want to sign him up for. And he has to do it. So, <laughs> um, and then they're like, oh, so you're accepting this child as yours. You're adopting him. And he's like, yep. Uh he says something like his parents are very far away. Um, cause we, they, we, he has no way of knowing. Nobody has any way of knowing our group Grogu's parents alive. Are they dead? Like, where are they? Um, so I think the way he words it is just like his parents are very far away. So yeah, it, it seems like the rules and regulations around this ceremony are that if you can't, if you're not old enough to speak, your parent or guardian can like promote you to apprentice as long as they give their, you know, give their approval. Um, And since Grogu's parents are not there, they're far away, they might not even be alive. 
this is that moment we've been waiting for where Din officially adopts Grogu and Grogu gets a new name, Din Grogu, which is so cute. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, the the IG-12 suit had been pretty much destroyed by the uh, um, the Praetorian guards yep. earlier. So they, this was taken out of the equation. But would you feel better about this if they had Grogu at the controls and they were like, Grogu, do you want to do this? And he could at least push the yes or no button. Ooh. That's interesting. Actually, I wonder why they didn't do that. Um, maybe they've I, been, maybe they're saving like his, his first word, his quote unquote first word is probably going to be like a big deal. So maybe they're saving that even though he already said yes and no many times. But yeah, I guess like maybe they didn't want the droid there for that ceremony. It would have been tonally weird, but um, yeah, I, I am kind of bummed the suit's gone. I mean, seeing Grogu bounce around in that IG-12 suit was just gave me so much joy. <laughs> um, At the know- very least, even without the suit, he can nod or shake his head no. So they could have been like, Grogu, yeah. what, what do you want? <laughs> and worded it as a yes or no question. That's true. Um, <laughs> but they don't. And I honestly, I think we can assume that like, it is what he wants. And like, you know, he has expressed that in some way, um, to Din or that he agrees with it. Um, and yeah, he, uh, is upgraded from foundling to apprentice. Um, and he is officially a Mandalorian now. Um, also this absolutely confirms that Bo saw the mythosaur. Uh, because the camera just kind of goes into the water, goes through the mur- murky depths, and lands on this horn, and then the eye of the mythosaur opening up. So that's not a character where we're seeing through yep. the eyes of a character that they're seeing the mythosaur. Like, they're just showing us independently. The mythosaur is down there. It has awoken. Uh, it's interested that these Mandalorians have come back. Did you read that? Se- I agree. Did you read that scene? Because Grogu kind of inches closer to the water and kind of peers into it and then they cut to the mythosaur so did you read that as grogu sensed its presence under the water yes okay same here yeah, yeah. um yeah and also uh uh we, i kind of yadded out over this but the dark saber is destroyed um and that seems really significant uh do you think that that is do you think that's a, a good way to end the whole dark saber saga do you think they're going to repair the dark saber i think it was a good way to end it and and it's it it'll give it was kind of a crutch for Bo-Katan in a way so I'm okay that it's gone and I'm okay embracing Din Djarin's approach that it's not station it's not hereditary it's not it's it's you you earn the role of leader of captain of you know monarch of Mandalore through your actions through your loyalty so no more Darksaber, but Bo-Katan has proven herself countless times over. So I'm okay with it being gone, and I'm okay with them not bringing it back. Yeah, I think it's it, it became such a like contentious symbol for the Mandalorians yeah. of like, well, you know, it's like the it's the conch, it's the the talking hammer, <laughs> yeah. it's the like without this symbol, you're nothing. And she's proven that she is still a great leader with or without it. Um, and yeah, I, I think, it, I think it's the best resolution for it, that it just got destroyed. It got taken off the board entirely. And now everybody just has to accept Bo for 
like exactly like you said, like like the way Din worded it, like who she is rather than the trinket that she carries. Absolutely. Um, so uh I am as cool as it is and as badass as it is, I kind of hope they don't just repair it and bring it back next season. I hope that's the end of the dark saber. I agree. I don't want this to become like Darth Vader's lightsaber where it just keeps reappearing and yeah, it's it's time hands. to it's time to say goodbye. Um so then uh the armor and bow light the 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 ignite the great forge once again. Uh and Mandalorian culture is restored on Mandalore, and they've taken back their, their whole planet. Din flies to uh, Adelphi. Think I think this is Adelphi base, the um, tropical kind of planet with the bar that Carson Tiva is at. Don't um, you get kind of like Pearl Harbor base vibes from that? Yeah, okay. <laughs> very much. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, the um, Yeah, I love, I love everything about this little cantina, and... They have like all these like helmets and and uh, IG 11's head um, or an IG I don't, I don't know if it's IG 11's but it's an IG unit's head yeah uh, and yeah they they he talks to Carson Tiva um, I forget what they talk about that's where where Dinjarin basically says hey I'm a great bounty hunter. The New Republic is strapped for resources. Lean on me in the Outer Rim. I can take down some of these bad Imperial forces that you don't have the energy or the bandwidth to take care of. Yep. Uh, oh, yeah, he's like on a case-by-case basis. That's yeah. right. I'm not going to work for you, but, you know, I'll take, yeah. I'll take bounties, basically. He describes himself, I think, as an independent contractor. Independent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Did you, wait, did you, did you watch uh, The Last of Us? Yes. Isn't that, isn't that the conversation that um, Joel and Ellie have where she's like, what did you do back in the, and he's like, oh, I was a, a contractor. And she's like, wow, what's that? That sounds really cool. <laughs> yes. Oh my, yes, I do remember that. Um, and didn't, didn't, <laughs> didn't Joel say sarcastically, oh yeah, everyone loves contractors. <laughs> yeah, they're the coolest. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I wonder if that's a cheeky little nod to that. Um, that's something clever they might do. I didn't even uh, make that connection, but yeah, maybe. That's hilarious. <laughs> they um so then all right, so then they 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 go back to Navarro and they have like a little yub nub moment. The Anzellans are <laughs> celebrating. Um all the people in Navarro are celebrating. The copper droid is out there. And then uh they're like, Oh, I've got it. They they keep pulling this off with the same exact character. I've got a surprise for you, Mando. <laughs> um and it's IG. Is he okay? What is he now? IG thirteen? Is, is he they, they describe him as IG eleven. They strangely. call him IG eleven. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. Good. And yeah, and he's got a he's got his memory unit restored somehow. So, somehow IG eleven has returned. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> um, and yeah, and he's going to be the new marshal yep. for Navarro, which is what uh, grief has been very, for a long time trying to get Din to do. Um, after we lost, uh, what's her name? Cara Cara Dune in season Cara one? Dune, yeah. Dune. Um, Will she be recast? I assume. I doubt it. They kind of yeah. hand waved her away. Like, yeah. in the, it might have been early. I forget it was earlier this season, or if it was in those Boba Fett episodes. But there is a conversation about like where she, where grief is asking Din to be the marshal, and he's like, "I'm too busy. What about Kara?" And he's like, "Oh no, she got recruited by somebody, and she's off doing this." 
Yeah, it was like New Republic Commandos or something like that. Or maybe that was her original role. But yeah, it was yeah. like a it was like a New Republic Strike Force. Um, yeah, so yeah, may, maybe that character's been retired since it's kind of a there was so much controversy around it. But Probably. well, not not around the character, but the the actress. Yeah, but um, that seems the most likely that yeah. she's just not going to come back. Um, so then uh, he's like, "Oh, I've got one more present for you," and it's like a little house, a little provincial house with his uh st- starfighter uh parked outside yeah, and yeah. um got a little canopy that he sits under and even what i love what i love about this final shot is even din relaxing at home like just sitting outside enjoying a sunset <laughs> or whatever is just still in full armor and a helmet like there's no casual clothes for a mandalorian yeah that is interesting um he, does, he must be so hot in that Navarro sun. Um, but that's, that, that is the way. Heat stroke is the way, yeah. I guess. Um, or not yeah. hot at all if they need a fire oh. to stay warm, you know? That's, that's, that's true. <laughs> Those Beskar suits are, are just, maybe they're like the uh, Star Wars equivalent of Mithril. They're just like this magical, amazing, legendary substance. <laughs> but yeah, the, um, the final, it's interesting, the... This was such a tumultuous season for the Mandalorian uh, group for uh, the, the the all those who subscribe to the Mandalorian way of life because they regained their planet. But in the end, it was kind of a reset for for Dinjarin and Grogu. They're kind of back to the bounty hunting way of life that we saw in season one and two. So it'll be interesting to see how, like, will there be more? bounties of the week in season four or will they mix that in with kind of larger trends in the universe imperials regaining power stopping by mandalore to see what's going on there hopefully it's a mixture of the two mm. well when we get into lose big three we're going to talk a lot more oh, about that all right let's do it um yeah i i do one last thing about this like final shot is uh if if they had decided to end the show here if this was if they told me like this is the finale of the entire show there's not going to be a season four of course, I'd be sad because I want more episodes of The Mandalorian. Um, but I, I, I would feel satisfied with this as a as a conclusion to the story of Din and Grogu. You know what? That is an absolutely great point. And I 100% agree with you because, and I'd love your take on this, I really dislike series finales where everything is accounted for and everyone has a life-changing moment. I really like a series finale where the main conflict is resolved, but characters still live their lives. You know, it's not like the end of everything. So the fact that Mandalore is restored, but it's clear that Din Djarin and Grogu are still going to go on adventures. It's open-ended. I totally agree. If this was the last scene and the last episode of The Mandalorian, I would be at peace with that. All right. So, Evan, are you ready for Lose Big Three? I... I endeavor to be ready for these. I can never be fully ready, but let's do it. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. So first off, we got uh, Max Rebo uh, brought in special guest Max Rebo to sing uh, the theme song. So Max, hit the theme. Lose big three. Just you and me with lose big three. Here we go. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, so talented. Yeah. Hopefully next time we can get Figrin Dan in here uh, to play backup. But um <laughs> But thank you, Max. So lose big three, number one. We talked we talked a lot about temperature control of these suits that the Mandalorians wear. You know, maybe there's 
um, some kind of like it, it's like the what the mascots at at Disney wear. They have like internal cooling or some kind of system for that. Um, but m- more importantly, how do they stay clean? When what's the laundry situation? Uh, do do they? Um, Din's first ship, the Razorback, was big enough that I could imagine it has like a full bathroom and a shower, but the N1 Starfighter certainly doesn't. Um, so what, so when do the Mandalorian shower? Uh, how does that work? And how do they, like, what basically, like, what, what, like, how much sweat do you think is like when they take their helmets off? (laughs) What do you think that smells like? (laughs) You know, that's, uh, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, there are a lot of logical inconsistencies with the series in general. Uh, and we talked about like, how do they have romantic relationships and how do they sleep and eat? We saw kind of how they eat, which is a weird tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a great point. Cause if he was to even shower, would he, he'd have to shower with the helmet on. <laughs> um, so maybe, you know, maybe like you, I love the, the reference to the mascots at Disney with the fans. Maybe there's also like a potpourri kind of discharger (laughs) (laughs) inside the suit. So Uh maybe it's like the middle ages with all these Mandalorians where like everyone smells terrible. So they don't notice it. But when they go, okay. So, but when they go somewhere like, like Coruscant where it's like civilized and they have like modern, you know, technology, you don't see people like (laughs) literally like, Oh my gosh, what (laughs) are there some Mandalorians around? (laughs) Jesus. What is that? (laughs) Um, yeah, also Bo's hair is absolutely perfect. Every time she takes it off. Yeah, that's distracting. There's no. <laughs> and it just disappears. Disapp- I know it's kind of cut like a bob cut, mm-hmm. um, but it just disappears entirely as soon as the helmet, like, like it's like out of a video game. Like the hair is like, <laughs> the, the hair program just turns off when the helmet program turns off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, lose big three, number two. Um, this is like a broad question across all of Star Wars because this, this is later than, you know, the original trilogy and even the prequel trilogy where, uh, um, anarchically the, um, the, the, the tech in the prequel era seemed to be more advanced than the OT era, but throughout all eras of Star Wars, Evan, my question is why is, uh, hollow vid or like camera technology, such low resolution. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's <laughs> the the real answer is like we got what we got in 1977 and 1980, and that just kind of de- that determined the the visual of it. Yeah. Um, but I would say it's clear that they just they they spend a lot of money in certain areas, warfare in particular, and droids, and they don't invest in in a lot of different ways, like. Where is the money to be invested in computers and and like displays? They, they just have a bunch of like red and yellow buttons that they press to like <laughs> for computers and and that but but they but they've got as we saw in the Clone Wars, essentially limitless droids, battle droids, limitless clone trooper gear and weapons. So yeah, I think uh, I think the like Senate Appropriations Committee needs to redirect some resources to some. <laughs> you know, some other areas, but that's a good call out. What, what, what's your theory? That it's, it's exactly what you said. Like it's <laughs> the, this series was uh, imagined in the seventies and that's why everything's analog. And that's why it's like, 
Um, you know, we don't have even like 12 megapixel cameras. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's, uh, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. My third question is a little more serious. Lose big three, number three. Who do you think is going to be the big bad in season four of the Mandalorian? My, so this is just getting, I want to get on the board early with my prediction. So if I'm right, I can look like a genius. And if I'm wrong, everyone can really take shots at me. <laughs> my feeling is that it's going to be like a, it's going to be kind of an organized crime villain. So I think there's, I think Mando is going to spend like a couple episodes taking down this Lieutenant or bringing in this commandant and kind of t- chipping away at the shadow council. And then at the, the top will be a Hux or will be that um, Pelian, the kind of the, you know, um, and maybe Thrawn shows up or something like that. But I feel like it'll be, you know, like in those detective shows or in those crime shows, there's like the whiteboard with mm-hmm. the, the, all the photos of all this lieutenants. I feel like it'll be Din crossing off those lieutenants heading for the, 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 the main Imperial boss guy. You think Vane will be involved in that? You think Vane will be like one of the lieutenants or lackeys or? I could see him like entering the employ of one of those warlords and that's how he shows up. Yeah. Do you think there's a chance that the Moth Gideon that they battled at the end of this this episode oh. was just a clone and well, now I do. Still, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm ready to say goodbye to Gideon. I, I, I Esposito is legendary already. He's great. Mm-hmm. But I, I wasn't in love with his portrayal of Gideon. It was like a little stiff, a little pretentious. Uh, and maybe that's just what the character was. That character was kind of pretentious. So, um, I'm ready to say goodbye. So I, I hope now you've left that seed and now I'm a little worried, but I hope we we can move on from Gideon. What's your take? Yeah, I hope that that's the case, but they really, they, they left the door wide open with him walking down the corridor and there's like at least eight of them. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it would absolutely make that whole final battle less impactful and take away from the significance of it. Um, if it turns out that they didn't actually, that wasn't actually Moff Gideon, that was a clone Gideon. Um, so I'm, I think it's, I think they, I think they gave themselves the ability that like if contracts and, you know, pay disputes or whatever work out that they can get Giancarlo Esposito back, maybe they will if they decide to write it that way. Um, but I don't, I I don't think that's the most interesting direction to go in. I think they know that that's not the most interesting direction to go in. And I don't think they they, were, he's been the villain since season one and they've just been um, recycling him over and over. So yeah, I I don't think it's the smartest thing to keep bringing him back. And I, um, do you, do you think, cause the story, the timeline is edging closer and closer to episode seven. Um, so, like, how how close do you think it'll get to the events of, like, do you think on Mandalorian Season 4, it'll intersect with, like, you know, there'll be reports of, oh, this giant mur- murder uh, ball <laughs> in the sky, like, took out four planets at the same time or five planets at the same time, and we'll, they'll deal with something like that? Or do you think it'll be still before that happens? I'm thinking and hoping it'll be well before. What is the timeline exactly? I've always assumed that this 
Mandalorian takes place like five years after the Battle of Endor. Yeah, I think like I think that. season one was like five years after, and I think at this point okay. we're about like about almost like eight or nine years after. All right, and then the Force Awakens takes place what like thirty years after thirty years Endor. Later. All right, so I think we still got some wiggle room there. There's a lot to explore, so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful they're not in a rush to intersect with like the events just before the Force Awakens. Yeah. Uh, cool. All right. Um, so that is going to conclude our discussion of The Mandalorian Season 3. Um, one thing, Evan, that we we haven't done so far with, uh, with this discussion, because uh, I wanted to save it for the end, was on every episode of Robots vs. Dinosaurs, I have a bonus question for my guests, which is, if we were to recast The Mandalorian, um, just focusing on Season 3, and you have to recast two characters as Danny DeVito and Whoopi <laughs> Goldberg. Which two characters? And how would that improve the show? Man, that's a tough one. Um, well, I think the obvious, well, an obvious, Danny DeVito should be Captain Bombardier. Oh, as much wow. as much, I love Jack Black, right? And but he felt kind of out of place here. Uh-huh. Um, and the character Captain Bombardier is already a joke. You know the name. Um, we yeah. agreed that's kind of like Buck Rogers. You know. Um, so I think uh, Danny DeVito would just be a lot of fun in that role. I think he'd be less um, deferential and almost cowardly. That's kind of how Black played it. Mm-hmm. And he'd be a little more of like a wise guy, like, yeah, I used to be an Imperial, so what? <laughs> um, so I, and I think I'd like that episode a little more. Whoopi Goldberg, I want to do Goldberg justice because my answer for when we did this question for Battle Beyond the Stars didn't really do her justice because she's sarcastic, she's witty, she's um, cutting, she's a funny lady, smart lady. So we need someone... Someone to really do her justice. You know, oh, I, I hate to remove Tim Meadows from the board, but man, Whoopi Goldberg as an apathetic, sarcastic bureaucrat in the New Republic, that's that's the role she was born to play. So I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna give her the role of bureaucrat Tim Meadows, and I'm going to give the role of Captain Bombardier to Danny DeVito. I think those are good answers. Um, I I was thinking Whoopi as uh, Carson Teva. Um, yeah. Uh, and the and Danny DeVito, Gorian Shard, all the way. Oh, the didn't even Captain. think of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the right answer. Yeah, <laughs> him sitting on the throne at like four foot eight or whatever he is. <laughs> <laughs> Deploy the snub fighters. Um, amazing. Eating, eating a sandwich, like eating a hoagie on the ship. <laughs> <laughs> Bring me my rum ham. Yeah. Oh God. Uh, amazing. So, um, so Evan, thank you so much for going on this Mandalorian uh, season three journey with me. Um, I we haven't talked about this uh, off air yet, but. Uh, I'm I'm strongly considering like going back and doing a, a review of the first two seasons 
uh, and maybe even including those episodes of Boba, Book of Boba Fett. So uh, maybe we can like carve out some time and uh, do like a similar approach where we do like chunks of episodes. Um, would, is that something you'd be interested in is like going back and talking about the rest of the series? Yeah, I'd be honored to rejoin for that conversation and any excuse to look back at some of my favorite episodes of the series. And I think there's a lot to unpack with Book of Boba Fett because I know you feel very strongly about that and there's a, a lot of material to mine there. So I would it would be a privilege to, to have that conversation in the future. Yeah, there's absolutely no way that I'm doing like an episode by episode coverage of Book of Boba Fett. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but I would be happy to like do an in-depth um, analysis of those two, the Return of the Mandalorian episode and the, and the other one. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. So uh, so yeah, we'll we'll talk about that offline. We'll figure something out. Uh, so listeners, you uh, write in and let us know if that's something you'd be excited about and want to want to hear. Um, and yeah, once again, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. Give us a five-star review on whatever podcast that you're listening to. And you can always write in to robosdinos at gmail.com. Uh, tell us which side of the space dinosaurs versus space droids cage match you think would be emerge victorious. Um, and we'll see you next time. This is the way. Somehow IG-11 has returned. I see what you did there. Would you let R2 vote in an election? No one in their right mind would do that, so it's pointless to even talk about Can you believe this? We better skedaddle. You may but you don't have the dark saber, so blah, blah, blah. There's always a bigger fish. He's my son. Yes. Uh, it's too bad. I thought Navarro was going to make it. Lerman. Lerman. Tong's days, am I right? Protocol droid for the win. I'll go put on the kettle. I was going to make espresso. Oh, you're leaving? Oh, oh okay. <laughs>